0: Good morning. My name is Stuart McCrabb. The joy of serving on staff as one of the pastors. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to continue in our series of Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 30. If you've been with us, we've been saying how this was going to be a six-week series. It's going to be a seven-week series, but it will come to a conclusion next week. Uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at today, as, as many of you are familiar with, uh, is going to be discussing... God's providence, our trusting in him to, to work all things together for our good. And to that end, I got some resources I want to be able to give out. Uh, they're ostensibly kind of the same thing. Two literally are. The other one's a devotional of the book, but... This is a, a book by uh, a man named Jerry Bridges. And the, the book is Trusting God. It's about 200 pages. There's actually a study guide in the back. So it's not as big as you think it is. And then there's the uh, 31-day devotional. Would anybody like free resources? You want the book or the devotional? Uh, the book. There you go. Anybody else? OK. Which one? The devotional. Devotional. OK. You. You're welcome. All right. normally normally Pastor Doug gets to pass out the resources. I feel like I get to be the man of the people today. This is great. (laughs) All right, well, go go to Romans chapter eight. If you're not already there, go to Romans chapter eight. We're gonna be looking at verses 28 through 30. Verses 28 through 30. And Paul wrote, and we know he also glorified. Romans 8:28. Gotta think that's one of the most loved, cherished, quoted, memorized verses in all the Bible. All things work together for good. That's, that's a rock under the feet of people who are suffering and going through trials when, when God's people are thinking well. It's like the North Star that gives us direction. It lets us know that we have assurance that our suffering isn't useless, but meaningful. Now, this this chapter, Romans chapter 8, has largely been about the believer's sanctification, our, our conformity to the image of Jesus. And thus far, the focus has been on the Holy Spirit's role in that. But Paul shifts his focus now in discussing God the Father's role in our sanctification. In verse 17, Paul concluded his teaching on God's adoption of us with this, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Commentator F.F. Bruce wrote, it's not merely that the glory is a compensation for the suffering. It actually grows out of the suffering. There is an organic relation between the two for the believer as surely as there was for the Lord. Paul didn't have a Pollyanna view on life. This is the man who recounts his own life in Second Corinthians chapter 11 as having been five times almost whipped to death, three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, another attempt at his Death three times was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea for a night and a day. On frequent journeys, he was in danger from rivers, robbers, his own people. Others came after him. He experienced danger in the cities, in wildernesses. He experienced toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst. Paul, Jesus' apostle. Jesus just saved Paul. And he commissioned him and sent him. Paul is Jesus' sent one to the Gentiles. And and this sent one pleaded with Jesus three times that his physical ailment, his thorn in the flesh, would be removed. And and Jesus says, no. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. But Jesus told his sent one, no. No and bring up the themes of suffering and glory in verse 17, Paul then pivots to these themes in verses 18 through 30. In verse 18, he writes this. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Present suffering is not worth comparing with future glory. And then Paul goes on to argue in four ways for this through verses 19 through 30. He says creation longs for the glorification of God's children, 19 through 22. He says our own eagerness for the redemption of our bodies, 23 through 25. The the Spirit has our future glory in mind as he intercedes for us, 26 through 27. And finally, God the Father works all things together for our ultimate good, 28 through 30. The, The truths in this passage are not theory for Paul. They're not theory for the Christians in Rome, the the Christians in Rome have already experienced their own suffering, great persecution, interpersonal conflicts, death, and not too far off into the future, they will literally be made human torches to light Nero's kingdom. So Paul tells these Christians though, he, he tells us, take heart, your bad things work for good. Your good is better than you think and the best is yet to come. Romans 8, 28 through 30 provides two rock solid truths to give us assurance that our suffering does not thwart our ultimate salvation, but it is what God uses to accomplish it. God's good providence and God's unbreakable salvation. We're gonna spend more time on God's providence and then be quicker with the second. So this first rock-solid truth to give us assurance that our suffering is not a waste, it's not meaningless, but it is what God uses to accomplish our ultimate salvation, God's good providence. Let's reread verses 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This this passage, as we said, it closes this little section within chapter eight that started back in verse 18 for Paul. Present suffering is not worth comparing to future glory because we know that all things work together for good. Let, let, let's start with this sweet and precious promise and then we'll look at to whom this applies. The, the ESV is, literal, is very literal to the original language where, where it implies that God is the one who works together all things. Maybe you have the, the New American Standard Bible in front of you that makes it clear when it says God causes all things to work for good. Or maybe you have the NIV in front of you that says that in all things God works for the good. And in all things, all things work together for good because of God. And what are all things? Again, Paul is in the thick of arguing that present suffering is not worth comparing to future glory. So suffering, trials, calamities, tragedy are all on the forefront of Paul's mind. He means to assure God's children that their suffering is not useless or wasted, but is meaningful. And so all things is most certainly our suffering, but all things is all things. Not, not some, not most, but all. Good things, bad things. Prosperity, adversity, success, failure, right, wrong, holiness, sin, victory, defeat. There, there is nothing outside of all things. It is totally comprehensive and all inclusive. And all things work together. The, the Greek word, the, in the original language that the New Testament was written, the, the word, work together, is synergio. It's, it's where we get our word synergy from. God is causing a, a synergy to occur in all things. And God is presently, actively, in an ongoing way, working all things Together. God's hands are not off the wheel. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't take time off, and he never falters. Your heavenly Father, moment by moment, is working all things together for your Good family, there is no such thing as luck or randomness. No, no karma or kismet. There's no happen chance or serendipity. There is God who works all things together. What what, what could perceptibly be more of chance than rolling the die? But Proverbs 1633 says the dice is cast, but it's every decision, it's every turn is from the Lord. We're talking about God's providence. You see, the Bible doesn't teach deism, There's this notion that God created everything and then, and then stands back, hands off, does not intervene. That's not what the Bible teaches. The book I mentioned earlier, the author Jerry Bridges, he defines, defines God's providence as this constant care for, in his absolute rule over all creation for his own glory and the good of his people. The Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563 says this, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and grass rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And, and what of this God who is working all things together? Three, three things, quick notes. He is all-loving. Your, your Heavenly Father loves you more than anyone ever could or would, more than you ever could or would. And his providence is directed by his perfect love for you. You can trust him. He is all-knowing. It would be one thing if he loved you but then didn't know what to do, but your heavenly father knows exactly what is the greatest good for you. What's more, nothing catches him by surprise. What appears to be chaos to you is organized to him. You can trust him. And finally, God is all-powerful. And not only perfectly loves you and knows everything about you and your situation but he can powerfully make it happen. Nothing can thwart God. Your heavenly Father can powerfully overcome every obstacle in the way. You can trust him. There's no plan B for God. There's no contingencies needed. Plan A always a winner. As Ephesians 1:11 says, it is God who works All things according to the counsel of His will. Now, let's be clear God is not the author of sin or evil, but God is so powerfully in control of all things that He uses evil and sin for your greater good. When Joseph is talking, famously talking to his brothers about the evil that they perpetrated against him, selling him into slavery, he says this to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20: You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. One one it, one event, the evil that the brothers perpetrated against him and selling him into slavery, but God God had a meaning. God had an intent in it, the evil for good. You recall God providentially used the brother's evil to put Joseph into a place of authority to bring about good. The, the, The food collection plan that saved many, and in particular, Joseph's own family during the long famine. Of course, Supremely, we see God providentially using evil for good in the crucifixion of Jesus. Ne- never has there been a greater evil perpetrated than the planning and killing of innocent Jesus. And this is how Peter describes it in Acts 4. Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God causes all things to work together for good. After asking and answering the question, what is God's providence, the Heidelberg Catechism goes on to ask, What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And its answer is we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. It was God's invisible hand that made a way for his people when there was no way. When he parted the Red Sea, and it is God's hand that will make a way for you when there seems to be no way. Don't think for one moment that your sin, your suffering, your setbacks can thwart God's hand? As Charles Spurgeon once said, Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that God's providence in my life has prevailed over and against the plans that I thought were better. I can testify that God has used my sin, my suffering, and my setbacks. As believers, we have the rock-solid truth Lord. that God works all things together thank you, Jesus. for good. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. yes. Now, what's often overlooked about this truth of the are the qualifiers. Paul writes that God works all things for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen. God does not work all things together for good for everyone. He does so for his people. Look, there's clearly common grace that God does providentially bring about the, the rain on the just and the unjust alike, but the scripture's clear here. The promise that all things work together for good is for Christians, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, now listen though, this isn't for those who perfectly love God or else none of us would enjoy this promise. Paul also makes clear God's call precedes our love for him. If you love God, it is because God first loved you. That, that's 1 John 4, 10. Here's how one commentator puts it. Paul does not make love for God a condition for the fulfillment of his promise, but with the description who are called according to his purpose, our love for God is taken as a sign of his effectual calling. God's call on your life, his summons for you to rise from your spiritual grave is what preceded and produced your love for him. So just, let's, let's just make this plain. Do, do you love God? Do, do you have any reason to believe that you've been called by him? Do you you see evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life? Do you you see his fruit in your life? If so God God caused that, and then listen, this promise is for you. you. Now before we look at verse 29, I'm going to end where Paul started. This little phrase, and we know. Let's not pass over this because it is not, and we feel. Oh, many of the things that happen in our life do not feel good. Chronic illness, pain, health issues do not feel good. The death of a loved one does not feel good. Loss of a job does not feel good. Being passed over at work does not feel good. Interpersonal conflict does not feel good. Paul also doesn't say we understand. Man, mo- most times we, we don't nor won't understand how God's providence is working all things together for good in this life. It might be years later that we do. If at all, Paul says we know. If you're a child of God, know for certain that your heavenly father is working all things together for your good. Now, Now, this isn't saying bad things are actually good things, nor is it saying that if you love God, only good things will happen. The the, the Bible is painfully clear and acknowledges, this this promise acknowledges bad things happen. But the promise is God works your bad things for good in the totality. God's providence and our experience and perception of it has been likened to Tapestry, just like the, the back of tapestry, our, our, our life can seem like a mess and of nonsensical chaos, but God promises he is at work. And maybe in this life we'll see in part, but one day we will see in total the, the front of the tapestry where God was taking all of, the, all of the threads of our life and we're stitching them together, working them together to make something Beautiful. Now, the the temptation is to think that this promise is fulfilled in such a way that we we can demand that God shows us how he's working all things together for good in in the moment. I mean, if we're really gracious, maybe we'll give him a week. But brothers and sisters, the promise isn't for the moment. It's not for the week. It's not for the month. It's not for the year. It's not for a decade. You're going to make shipwreck of your faith if you put God on a clock here. Often in this life, we only get to see the back of the tapestry. Sometimes when we look back, we can get glimpses of the front. Well, family, the promise isn't that we will see or understand. The promise is we know that our Heavenly Father works are bad for good in the total Well, speaking of the good that God is working all things together for, verse 29 tells us what the good is and explains the reason why God is working all things together for our good. Let's reread verse 29. For, and here's the reason why God works all things together for good for his people, it's because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And here's what the good is, to be conformed into the image of his son in order that, for this purpose, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, brothers and sisters, sons of God, daughters of God, your, your heavenly Father is working all things together for your eternal good because he foreknew you. And because he foreknew you, he predestined you to be conformed into the image of Jesus. The good God works all things together for is not necessarily prosperity, victory, success, good in the ways that the world might see it, good in the ways that you might see it. Ultimately, in your father's eyes, the good that he's working is your conformity to the image of his son. And God isn't just all of a sudden at work, as if you just popped up on the scene, he's scrambling around trying to to make it all happen. God works all things for your good because he foreknew you. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He does know who will and won't believe, but knowing facts isn't what God's foreknowledge is biblically about. God's foreknowledge is more relational than factual. Paul says it's whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew the New Testament word for know that's in foreknowledge is related to its Hebrew counterpart. In the Hebrew, when referring to God, know often refers to God's special love for his people. And speaking to his chosen people in Amos 3.2, God says this to the prophet, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. But of course, this doesn't mean that God didn't know everyone else that he personally created, no means you only have I specially loved. You only have I been in a unique covenant relationship with. God's foreknowledge is his sovereign determination to set his personal covenant love on individuals, not based on anything they will or won't do, but based solely on his choice to forelove them. And because he foreknew, he predestined. Because he foreloved, he elected. Predestination, uh, election, God's choosing of people are in many ways synonymous uh, terms and expressions in the Bible. Predestination is God's activity before the foundation of the world to choose a people whom he will save and conform to the image of Jesus. (laughs) In Romans chapter nine, so just one chapter later in verses 11 through 12, talking about God choosing and putting his covenant love on Jacob the younger instead of Esau the older, Paul writes, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Rebekah was told the older will serve the younger, now, now, listen. God, God's foreknowledge and election of these Christians were were not to be matters of d- debate. Paul brings up these realities to give assurance. This wasn't for them to have theological conversations. This was so they would have hope in their suffering. God had not abandoned them. He had not stopped loving them. I mean, the tendency can believe. The tendency can can be to, to believe that. God loves us, he's with us, we're, we're being blessed by God when things are going well and, 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 and then wonder if God has left us and doesn't love us and has forsaken us when things aren't. But brothers and sisters, regardless of, of how bad your circumstances may appear, know, know that God your heavenly Father is working your bad for your good because he forloved you. And he chose you to be conformed into the image of his son even through your suffering. Your heavenly Father has set his special love upon you and chose you before the foundation of the world and because he did so before you ever did anything his love for you is irrevocable. The same love that chose you in eternity past will bring you safely home to eternity future. Well, there's a, a purpose in all of this. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that for this purpose, Jesus might be the firstborn among many Brothers, the glorification of Jesus. The the glorification of Jesus is the ultimate purpose of your conformity into the image of Jesus. This expression, the firstborn among many brothers, expresses both the unique preeminence of Christ and also the fact that he shares his privileges with his brothers and sisters. Paul is really looking all the way back to verse 17, if children and heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Christ, in order that we may also be glorified with Christ. Christ is glorified as we are, through our suffering, conformed into his image. So the, the first, this first rock solid truth to, to give us assurance that our, our suffering is not thwarting our ultimate salvation, but it is exactly what God uses to accomplish it is God's good providence. The second second truth that we'll look at in this passage is God's unbreakable salvation. This is the beginning of verse 29 and then verse 30. So let's, let's start beginning of verse 29. For those whom God the Father foreknew, he also predestined. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And verse twenty-nine, Paul starts something that's just so fantastic that he can't pick it up, can't help but pick it back up in verse thirty. The, this string of God's saving activity has long been coined the golden chain of salvation. You certainly notice the repeated phrase, "He also each he also." forges a, a, a link in the chain where one saving activity of God leads to, assuredly leads to, the next. Each he also is a promise of God that he finishes what he starts. Before we briefly address some of the new terms that we see here, let's just consider for a moment why Paul goes here. Remember, Paul started this section of verse 18 with the notion that present suffering is not worth comparing with future glory. And now he concludes his argument by telling these suffering saints that their glorification is a sure promise of God, that their heavenly Father forged for them an unbreakable salvation. These Christians have suffered, are suffering, will suffer but their suffering does not thwart their ultimate salvation. Glory is awaiting them. mean, soon they will hear, and we, we will too next week, that there is nothing that can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's unbreakable salvation is a grand and glorious salvation Revelation from our Heavenly Father meant to assure suffering saints like you and me that our future is secure. Amen. Thank you, Thank you. We, we started this chapter with justification. Verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and now Paul says, those whom God the Father justified are also Glorified. See, in between justification and glorification, is a life full of ups and downs, suffering and trials, victory and defeat. Paul wants us to know God finishes what He starts. Each he also is a blood-bought promise purchased at the cross. Thank you. Thank you, oh. Brothers and sisters, I, I know. We, we talked about earlier that it is not we feel and talked about some things that do not feel good, but I, I know some of you are dealing with things Some of you are dealing with chronic health issues, and you have for years. I know know some desire to be married. It's not happening. I know some desire kids. It's not happening. I know some recently experienced the death of a loved one. Some of you are still struggling with the death of a loved one. Some didn't get the job they were hoping for. Some are dealing with very complicated family issues. Some with marital tension. Some are dealing again and again with the same sin. And in all these, the the temptation can be to think that God has abandoned us, but maybe the temptation is to think, well, hey, if God's behind all this, then, then I'm done with him. And I get both of these. And i got to presume that Paul understood these as well, and so did the Christians in Rome. That's why these verses are here. Paul went suffering saints to look away from themselves, to look away from their circumstances as the interpretive lens for how their salvation and of who God is for them, and to look to their heavenly Father who forged for them an unbreakable salvation. Brothers and sisters, your heavenly Father has forged for you an unbreakable salvation. He also, he also, he also, he also, you can trust him to finish what he starts. Hallelujah, amen, glory. Hallelujah, amen. Now let's go ahead and Briefly look at the terms, uh, the ones that we really haven't uh, been able to, to consider yet. But what, what we see here is the crucial activity of God in salvation. Uh, our response to the gospel is in the background. Our, our sanctification, our conformity into the image of Jesus now takes a back seat. God's activity that he does alone is bought to the forefront. And what we really see here ostensibly is the order of salvation. We kind of make this as easy as possible. Step one, God's foreknowledge of his people. This leads to God's predestination of his people. This leads to step three, God's calling of his people. And we've, we looked at foreknowledge, we looked at predestination, so looks, let's look at God's Calling. The the call of God refers to God's work in history, where God effectually summons those whom he foreknew and predestined the saving faith through the gospel. We kind of noted this earlier in verse 28 through the grace of God, the divine summons of God brings about the response of faith it requires. Listen, while God is the one who draws, this doesn't mean that a person is somehow saved apart from their willing response to the gospel. It's just that the call of God brings about the response it requires. God's call is fundamental and causative to our response. Jesus says in John 6, no one can has the ability, no, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in John 10:16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So step three, God's calling of his people and it leads to step four, God's justification of his people. We talked about justification a couple weeks back when we were looking at verse one, but because of a couple weeks back, let's, let's just briefly talk about justification. God's justification is the instantaneous legal act of God where he thinks of your sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to you and so declares you righteous in his sight. Listen, in one very real sense, you will never be more righteous than the day you trusted in Jesus because it was that day that you were gifted Christ's perfect righteousness and so were thus declared to be right before God. It's not a righteousness that you can corrupt or perfect. It's Christ's perfect righteousness that you have been gifted your your right standing with God is now and forever based not on how you are doing at any given moment your right standing with God is based on you standing on Christ's righteousness alone I mean in the end we want to say with Paul whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So step step four, God's justification of his people which leads to step five, God's glorification of his people. This is God's ultimate goal in your salvation, the ultimate perfection of his people so that they can enjoy everlasting fellowship with him forever. Now, what's interesting here, and maybe you know this and find this interesting too, Paul speaks about our future glorification in terms of having been done in the past, as if it already occurred, why? Paul speaks of our future glorification in terms of having already happened to emphasize its surety. Paul wants us to be confident that since God finishes what he starts, our future glorification is as good as done. Paul wants us to be confident in God. Family, the surety of our salvation, the, the surety of making it home to glory is not based on us, but on the God who forged for us an unbreakable salvation in eternity past. Amen. From eternity past Thank you, to eternity future. Hallelujah. Thank you. Because our Heavenly Father knew us he also predestined us, and since he predestined us, he also called us, and since he called us, he also justified us, and since he justified us in the mind of God, he has already glorified us. Theologian D.A. Carson famously said, the, the truth of the matter is that all we have to do is live long enough, and we will suffer. Suffering is the experience of everyone who lives in this fallen and broken world and it's the sure promise of God's people. It's the very condition for being an heir of God and for the promise of future glory with Christ to be assured. But brothers and sisters, you can have confident assurance. Your bad things being worked for good, Amen. your good is better than you think and the best is yet to come. Hallelujah. Your suffering isn't purposeless or meaningless. Romans 8, 28 through 30 shows us two rock solid truths to assure us that our, your present suffering Amen. does not, won't thwart your ultimate salvation, but it is exactly what God uses to bring it about. Present suffering is not worth comparing with future glory because God is working bad things for your ultimate eternal good, your conformity to Jesus and your assured glorification. There's not one dashed hope, not one calamity, there's not one sin, nor one failing, nor one trial, nor one suffering that God is not working together for your conformity to the image of Jesus and your future glorification. You can trust God. You can trust your heavenly father. Jesus' death and empty tomb testify that God is trustworthy and that he is working all things together for good. me take heart. Thank you. Your heavenly Father has set in motion an unbreakable salvation for you, and he finishes what he starts. Yes, amen. Let's pray. Glory glory. Thank you, Jesus. God, we, we thank you. We thank you. What a sweet passage filled with assured promises. Sometimes these things are easier to mentally assent to than they are to believe wholeheartedly in the moment and so we we ask please would you help us to know against all that we might feel or hope to understand, would you empower us to know, to trust you that you do what you say and you say that you work all things together for our good. Do you give us faith to, to cling to you while remembering that The promise of Jesus is that it's not so much about how much we cling to you, but he says that no one will snatch us out of his hand. So thanks be to God that you hold on to us tightly. We love you. We thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.